Thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning. I don't know how you're feeling this morning uh, as you get up and come into this place. I know uh, for many of us, uh, myself included, I feel a complexity of emotions. And so uh, I feel the excitement and anticipation of a new year, but that's coupled with the sadness of the tree having to come down. And we left ours up for an extra week just so that we could combat the sadness and mourning um, that's associated with the end of the Christmas season. Um, But there's likely a a layered complexity of emotions. It's really crazy to think that 2015 is over, right? That it's in the rearview mirror. I remember when I was growing up as a kid, um, my, my parents, my grandparents used to say, you know, man, life just flies by so fast. And every year it just gets faster and faster. I remember looking at them like, you're so old. That's so crazy. That, that, that doesn't resonate with me at all. And now it, it does more and more. It catches up to you um, just like everything else in life over the course of time. And, and you look back and you do go, whoa, that's crazy. 2015 is over. It's in the rearview mirror. It's, it's done. It's in the books, so to speak. And so for me, I find it helpful because uh, you, can, you can just fly so fast that life does pass you by and you don't assess your life and what's happening in it. I find it helpful to ask monumental questions, questions like, where did you see God's grace at work in your life in 2015? If you could look back over the last 12 months, where do you see God at work um, in your mind, in your heart, shaping you, conforming you into the image of his son. Another question, where did you find yourself needing to trust in God's character in the midst of suffering in 2015, in the midst of, of loss? Where did you see God refine you in the midst of the fire in 2015 and to monument those things, right? When you look at the Bible, we see it tattooed all over the pages of scripture. The Israelites are in the wilderness. They're beginning to question God's goodness, God's character, God's presence, And they have to be reminded, oh, this is what God brought me through. I see his goodness. I see his sovereignty. I see his providence in my life. We have to look back and and mile mark these moments in our lives where we see God at work because we're going to need them as we continue on the journey. This time a year ago, many of us were establishing New Year's resolutions. Many of us had already done that, right? Because it was 2015 at that point when when you gathered together as the church for that first Sunday. And so let me ask you this question. How did that go for you? How long did that resolution last? For for most of us, we're doing really well if we keep our resolve until Valentine's Day, right? Um, New Year's resolutions oftentimes are, are just another reminder that we can't pull ourselves up in our own strength that uh, for most of us, our resolve doesn't last. Gym memberships get wasted. Um, Our commitment to try new things gets put on the back burner a few months after we make those commitments. And and so this morning, what I wanna do is is I wanna wanna come at it from a different angle. I'm not uh, not looking to discredit resolutions. If you wanna seek to eat better in 2016, please do that for the glory of God. Uh, If you want to recycle more in 2016, please do that for the glory of God and the good of his creation. If you want to serve others more in 2016, please do that for the glory of God, the good of others, and and the joy of your own soul. But let's not come at this naively and think, oh, it's 2016. This, This just might be my year. This just might be the year that I'll stick to that diet and never fail. This This just might be the year that I'll be more others-minded and never fail at that. This just might be the year that I'll manage stress better and never fail at that. This just might be the year that I'll drink less, smoke less, spend less. The year that I'll recycle more and I won't fail at that. The reality is that our hearts are fickle and and we're going to encounter those moments where uh, we don't do it perfectly. 
And so what if we approached the new year a little differently? And what if we committed ourselves to a different kind of resolution? The word resolution, uh, by definition, it's up on the screen, means a firm decision to do or not to do something. To be resolute is to be admirably purposeful, determined, unwavering. So what if we as Christians in 2016 committed ourselves to being resolute in the one thing that can deepen our passion, in the one thing that can increase our confidence, in the one thing that can help to more firmly establish our identity and root it, the one thing that can calm our hearts and replace despair with peace, the one thing that can replace pride with humility. What if I said that was my vision for your life and for mine in 2016? Would you want that? What if we as Christians committed ourselves to being resolute in the gospel, to being admirably purposeful in the gospel, to being determined and unwavering in the gospel? And so I wanna unpack that because for some of us, we hear that language and it sounds like classical Greek, right? What are you, what are you talking about? Be more resolute in the gospel in 2016. So I wanna unpack that and I wanna do so by opening up to Psalm chapter 42 this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can go there. We'll be focusing predominantly on verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats in the row in front of you nearby. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, Happy New Year. That Bible is the church's gift to you. Please take it, uh, use it to explore the truth claims of Christianity for yourself on your own time. I'm just gonna read verse 11 and pray, and we're gonna jump in for a few minutes and talk about what it means to be resolute in the gospel in 2016 Psalm 42, verse 11, the psalmist says this, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let me pray. Father, I'm inclined to believe that most of us in this room, myself included, have too small of a vision for our lives in 2016. And so I pray that you would expand our vision this morning. I pray that as we walk out of this place, that we would be committed to the one thing that can deepen our passion, to the one thing that can increase our confidence, to the one thing that can more firmly establish our identity, to the one thing that can calm our hearts and replace despair with peace, to the one thing that can replace pride with humility, which is the gospel. So God, would you help us to better understand what it means to be resolute in the gospel? Uh, Holy Spirit, uh, we are hopeless without you in 2016. We deeply need your power at work in our lives. So would you come in power? Would you help us to expect you to move, to anticipate that you will do great things in our lives for your glory and our joy? Father, we lift these things up to you by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I wanna drive at something this morning that I think is critical in the Bible Belt. I think it's critical in the lives of, of all of us in this room, and, and it's this, that there is a massive, I mean, monumental difference between your confessional theology, what you say you believe, what you can articulate to other people, what you understand at a mind level, and your battlefield theology, that which forms your responses when life gets hard, when the battle for your soul ensues. And I wanna argue this morning that good confessional theology is simply not enough, that our hearts have a tendency to, to drift from our confessional theology, especially when things get hard. We begin to lend our ears to doubt, which creates a wedge between our confessional theology, what we say we believe at a mind level and confess with our mouths, and our very hearts, what we believe when we're on the battlefield, that we begin to doubt God's character. Is he really in control? 
Does he really love me? Is he really good? We begin to doubt our identity in Christ. Am I really loved by God? I mean, am I really forgiven? Could God really forgive someone like me? We, we lend our ears to anti-gospels, which are motivated by fear, by doubt, by panic, by bitterness, by distrust, by pride, and the list of culprits just goes on and on and on, right? We can't help ourselves. We, we have to converse with ourselves. We're wired that way. Paul Tripp, in his book, Dangerous Calling, says it this way. He says, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. That you're gonna preach something to yourself. We do it all the time, multiple times a day. And the question becomes, will you preach gospel to yourself or will it be some form of an anti-gospel that you preach to yourself? And this is the situation that the psalmist in chapter 42 finds himself in, right? He's clearly experiencing ridicule and oppression at the hands of his enemies. If you look at verse three of Psalm 42, the psalmist says, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where's your God? You just hear the ridicule, right? Verse nine, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He's being oppressed. Verse 10, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. There's a taunting, a ridiculing, and oppressing that he's experiencing. Verse three tells us his emotional state is one of sadness. My tears have been my food day and night. Whether the sun comes up or the sun goes down, no matter what time of the day it is, constant weeping is taking place in the life of this man. According to verse seven, he feels like he's drowning. It says, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. You ever felt that way? You ever felt like you're drowning? Like everything is falling apart in life? I mean, some of you guys feel that way coming out of the holidays, right? Let's not pretend that only joy is increased in the midst of the holiday season. Sorrow is increased just as much for many of us as we go through that time of the year. The, the anti-gospel that the psalmist could have so easily preached to himself is, my circumstances are sovereign, not God. Right? We do that all the time. It's hopeless. God isn't for me. God doesn't really love me. Just look at my situation. We experience it all the time. That, that little maniacal voice that says, God, God isn't for you. God's given up on you. God doesn't love you. Have you seen your sin? How could he possibly love someone like you? You can't really trust people enough to be transparent with them, right? You understand that. You gotta wear those proverbial fig leaves. You can't possibly put the real you out there for people to know and see. And the list goes on and on and on. There are a thousand different circumstances that can bring about a thousand different anti-gospels in our lives, which makes it very difficult to get at it at its root here in the context of the church gathered on Sunday. And I'm gonna argue in just a moment, we need more than that, although that is crucial that every one of those anti-gospels causes us to doubt the character of God, the presence of God, the promises of God, our identity in Christ. We, we battle with that all the time. And, and it's possible that the psalmist might have been tempted to lend his ears to doubt, yet he knew deep down that God's glory and his joy were at stake in that moment. And so notice that if you read Psalm 42 in its entirety, you see the psalmist making declarative statements just in general. You see him making statements to God that there's a, a prayer going on between him and God. But in verses five and verse 11, which were mirror images of one another, the psalmist is talking to himself. You see that, right? Why are you cast down, oh, my soul? 
Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about the psalmist in this morning's text. He says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc. He goes on to say, somebody's talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man in Psalm 42, his treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? He asks. His soul has been repressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. That that this is what preaching the gospel to yourself is. It's, it's grabbing yourself by the proverbial collar, so to speak, daily, hourly, sometimes by the very moment, depending on what you're going through, right? And saying, listen, self, this is what you need to be reminded about. God, self, as it pertains to his character, his promises, his presence, your confessional theology says this about God, but you're on the battlefield now, self, And doubt is on a mission to create a wedge between your head and your heart, self. So listen up. Here's what you need to hear. You need to hope in God. You're not believing in his sovereignty, but regardless of how you feel, according to Isaiah 46.10, his counsel shall stand. He will accomplish all of his purpose. You're not believing in his love for you, self, but regardless of how you feel, Romans 5.8 says that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. That's how he feels about you. So listen up, soul. You need a fresh vision of the glory of God's grace. You need a fresh reminder of the love of God for you in Christ. He is in control and he does love you. That's what it looks like to preach the gospel to ourselves. How how desperately do we need to do that more often than we do? And notice the importance of time in the scriptures. How do I know that God is in control when my life starts spiraling out of control? For the Bible tells me so. How do I know that God loves me when it doesn't feel like God loves me? The Bible tells me so, right? The scriptures are the content. They're the material for preaching the gospel to yourself. Every verse, every passage of scripture is another weapon in your arsenal when you're on the battlefield, another arrow in your quiver to aim at your heart when it fails to buy into what you say you believe at a mind level. Joe Thorne in his book, Note to Self, and I would commend this book to you if you don't currently own it. This is a fantastic book. It's just very uh, pragmatic excerpts on preaching the gospel to yourself in the midst of anti-gospels that you might be inclined to believe. He says this. He says, you have to preach to yourself because the world is broken, the devil is scheming, your heart is corrupt, and you need the gospel. Preaching to ourselves does not mean we must always be in the word, though. That is important. But that the word must always be in us. Let me give you a couple of examples, a couple of excerpts from this particular book, Note to Self, and I want you to notice what it looks like very practically to preach the gospel to yourself in the midst of anti-gospels that you might be inclined to believe. And the two examples I'm going to give you are ones that I personally battle with and ones that I think we may experience at a cultural level here in the Bible Belt. The first of those is an excerpt entitled, Stop Pretending. And the excerpt goes like this, and imagine saying this to yourself in the midst of uh, the anti-gospel of pretending in the midst of our culture. Dear self, like everyone else, you're pretty good at pretending. It's not malicious, but you can put on a good poker face when in reality things are not that good. You want to appear strong even when you're weak 
or you at least do not want to appear weak. This superficial persona is the front of pride that only encourages the sin to continue in yourself, and it ultimately robs you of gospel influence, the kind of influence Paul had with the church in Rome and they had with him. When you pretend, you lose gospel influence in two ways, inwardly and outwardly. You lose the inward influence of the gospel in that you're not honest with others and deny them the opportunity to speak into your life. When you lack transparency, people are left without the opportunity to encourage you where you need it most. For example, sometimes you become anxious, but you have a good poker face. So you hold it together on the surface, but underneath it all, you're in trouble. You need to tell the truth about what you're going through, and you need someone to tell you the truth of God. You need to hear of God's sovereign and good plan for the lives of those who love him and how this is rooted in the gospel. You need to see the strong faith of others so that you can persevere through such times of anxiety and fear. You pretend to protect yourself but wind up sabotaging your own spiritual life by not being real, and you aren't hurting only yourself by pretending. You lose outward influence of the gospel in the lives of others because you can't offer them anything that's real. Your best resource for speaking into others' lives is from what God is doing in you, the fruit that God is producing in you. But the fruit you want others to see is plastic. You can just see him holding himself up by the proverbial collar here. It is believable from a distance, but it nourishes no one. It's not real. And here's where you see the proclamation of truth come out of that. He goes on to say, know this. It is the gospel that allows you to be real. It admits us all as sinners and establishes us all as saints. Your local church is the only place where this reality and not pretending can be the culture of gathered community. Be real. Admit where you are and what you are. This will allow others to minister to you and you to minister to others. You see what that looks like? See, I would argue that many of us in the room, our confessional theology would say, yeah, we need to remove the proverbial fig leaves. We need to be more transparent with one another in community. We would, most of us would declare that at a confessional theological level. But when you're on the battlefield and there's an opportunity to be transparent so that the glory of God might work in your life and in the lives of others, what do you do? What do you do when you're in the midst of that moment? Is there an alignment of your confessional theology with your battlefield theology? Let me give you another excerpt entitled, So Grace. This one, he says this. Dear self, you should be sowing more grace. You should be more generous with your time, money, and gifts. The people around you, especially those who are unfriendly or even cross, need grace. Consider how you often give what you think is justice. That is what you think people deserve. You tip less for bad service, ignore people who have snubbed you, or sigh and roll your eyes at the person taking up too much space at the coffee house. And there the conviction sets in for Jamie. He goes on to say, you may not be doing evil, but you're not doing good. Ask yourself, am I known as a person of grace or a person of karma? That's a word we're terrified to use as Christians, right? Sounds so theologically errant. And yet... We, we put on this persona that communicates that very nuanced language. Do people see in me the principle of you get what you deserve or what goes around comes around? If this is true of you, then people won't see Christ in you, but will get a good dose of false religion. Such principles are already commonly understood in our culture, but the gospel principle of giving the good another does not deserve, that is different. 
God calls you to love justice and demonstrate mercy. Jesus commanded his followers to live generously and offer grace even to their enemies. Why are you offering less to those around you, to those God has sent you to as his ambassador? Perhaps because it's easier to aim at what you call justice, but such feelings are self-righteous and acting as judge only feeds your ego. You were not made for this. You can just see him again grabbing himself by the collar. You were not made for this. You were made for the glory of God and the good of others. What you need to consider, therefore, is that God commands you to live generously because he is gracious. He commands you to be patient and merciful because such things find their beginning in him. And you not only know him, but you know his grace. You know it. God has extended mercy to you blessing and forgiving you when you deserved much less. As a child of God, represent your father well by showing grace. So it. Again, most of us would argue at a confessional level, yeah, absolutely. Grace, grace alone, by faith alone, right? But when the rubber meets the road, when you're on the battlefield, is that true? Or, or is it um, a, a playing field of what's even, was I reciprocated in the gift I gave at Christmas or not? And if not, I'm going to tweak the way I approach 2016 because we need to have an even playing field here. Or when you get snubbed in, in the parking lot of a, of a grocery store or supermarket, what, what do you do in those moments? What does that look like? I mean, oftentimes we approach God with, with our fists in the air saying, you owe me. And the reality of the gospel is that God owed us nothing, but he gave us his son. And if that actually informs our battlefield theology, it changes the way we begin to live. But the reality is your, your fickle heart is not going to do that without proclaiming that to yourself in those moments, right? We, we have to constantly declare to ourselves, self, you want to believe this right now. And this is an anti-gospel. And so here's what you need to hear, soul. And that's what the psalmist does here in chapter 42, verse 11. He's in the midst of a situation where it would be very easy to declare some sort of anti-gospel. And yet in the midst of that, he preaches the gospel, the truth of God's character to himself, the truth of God's promises to himself, the truth of God's presence and provision to himself. And, and it's both reactive and proactive here. Um, it's reactive in that we preach the gospel to ourselves in the midst of circumstances that present an anti-gospel, like the psalmist in chapter 42. Or, or maybe it's even going uh, months in the past or years in the past because we've interpreted our experiences through an anti-gospel lens. Maybe it's going back to, hey, five years ago I went through this and I've been interpreting that in light of an anti-gospel. And I need to come back at that so that I can be informed of what God was doing in my life to even get me to this point in my journey. But it's also proactive. It's preaching the gospel to yourself before the disappointments of life come your way. Right? If ever there was a cry to get up and be in the scriptures every morning, if ever the idea of a, of a quiet time or a devotional time made sense, it's in light of what we're talking about this morning, that we don't know what's gonna come our way. Sometimes we do, and we can actually go to the, the very material, the very content of the scriptures that we know will help us to aim an arrow at that anti-gospel when we encounter it that day because we anticipate it. But oftentimes we don't know, and so we just continue to build up our storehouse of truth so that we can fight these anti-gospels when they come our way. It's both reactive and it's proactive. And so my question this morning, for all of us, myself included, is, is that your vision for 2016 for your life? Do you want an increased confidence in God? Do you want to see your passion for God 
grown? Do you want to see your identity in Christ more firmly established? Do you want to see um, calm replace despair in the midst of crises? Do you want to see humility replace pride at a heart level? Is that the vision that you have for your own life in 2016? If it is, let me just throw out a couple of very practical application uh, points coming out of this morning's text. Number one, very practically, if you want to grow in gospel fluency and the practice of preaching the gospel to yourself, which is how that vision comes to fruition, number one, get in a community group. If you're not in a community group at this point, please, I would implore you, as you leave this place, as you go out that back door to your right, that table in the back, there are sign-up cards for community groups. Sign up for one before you leave this, this very room this morning, and we'll do our best to get you acclimated into a group as we relaunch those at the beginning of February. That's the goal of these groups. They're called blind spots for a reason. You need a community of people who will help you to see the sin and unbelief in your life, to see what anti-gospels you're preaching to yourself, right? That's where I, I come short as it pertains to the church gathered on Sundays. I'm just shooting buckshot out into the crowd and hoping that it hits people. But what a community group is designed to do at a smaller level is for people to aim arrows at your heart at the bullseye of your heart to help you to see the very nuanced anti-gospels that you're preaching to yourself. Because again, there are thousands of them based on your experience, your circumstances that you're going to encounter in 2016. And so the goal of community groups is to then help you to preach truth in the midst of that circumstance to yourself and to have others declare that into your life for you. I'm personally writing community group questions every single week um, for the foreseeable future, and that's my aim. Every week as I'm writing these questions, it's to help unsurface or help surface anti-gospels, sin and unbelief, and then to help you as a group to declare the truth of God's character, promises, presence, and provision to one another as community. So that would be practical application number one. Part of that as well, if you're on the peripheral edges of of a community group, if you're a part of the revolving door of your community group roster, press in more. You can't possibly engage and move toward this vision that we have for you by, um, by not having some sort of cohesive consistency to that, um, that commitment and environment. But secondly, as far as practical application goes, look for living, breathing examples. Right? Look for people who are experiencing rest in the midst of circumstances that when you look at them, you go, I would never be able to rest in that. I, I just, I don't even know what's going on in your life right now. And, and Learn from these people. Ask them what they're believing in the midst of those circumstances. Ask them why it seems that they have a deeper-rooted joy and an ability to rest when you couldn't possibly envision yourself doing that in the midst of what they're going through. Those people are God's grace to you, right? We want to pull away from those experiences because we don't want to enter into their hurt, their pain, their loss. But when you press into that, it's actually God setting the stage for your life down the road when you encounter things because he's brought the church together as a family so that you might learn from others and grow in a, a gospel fluency in your own life. So as we close this morning, let me just say, welcome to 2016. The world is still falling still broken, Satan is still on the prowl, your heart is still fickle at times, corrupt at times. Uh, When 1201, January 1st hit, all that did not change. 
But the good news is that God is on the move and he's equipped you with everything you need in 2016 for his glory and your joy. And so again, my vision for your life in 2016 is this. And ask yourself, does this align with your vision for your life? My vision for you is that your passion for God and his glory would be deepened. My vision for you is that uh, your confidence in God in the midst of shaky situations and circumstances that you encounter would be increased. My vision for you is that you would be more firmly established in your Christ-purchased identity when you're inclined to veer off the gospel path and believe in Jesus plus something else for your identity. My vision for you is that your heart would be calmed in moments of despair in a way that, that can only be explained by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. My vision for your life is that the weeds of pride would be uprooted and replaced with the blooms of humility as you move through 2016. That's my vision. And that vision only comes to fruition if we're resolute in the gospel, if we're admirably purposeful in the gospel, if we're unwavering and determined in the gospel. And here's the deal, um, because a lot of Vision Sundays would really drive at, at hyper-pragmatic, like this many people baptized and this many people filling this room, and, and all that matters. It's a part of Jesus building his church, and so we're for that. But, but understand that if we're resolute in the gospel, I'm not really worried about us reaching people for Jesus, it's gonna happen, right? When you're experiencing the gospel at work in your present circumstances, it's hard to keep that to yourself. No longer is it a gospel that saved me 30 years ago and has no power in my life. All of a sudden it matters this week and I begin to see that other people deeply need this gospel, Christian and non-Christian alike. And my passion for them to understand and grow in that fluency of the gospel begins to grow. And not only that, but people begin to see something in your life that they want for theirs, Right? The gospel of God at work in the people of God is contagious, right? It spreads for the glory of God. So let's be resolute in the gospel in 2016. Let's commit ourselves to that New Year's resolution and watch God spread his glory all over this city and beyond. We're going to take communion in a moment. We do that here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. Uh, as you come, uh, as you prepare to come, um, Sit with, with where you are. Ask those questions of yourself. Where do I see God's grace at work in my life? Uh, looking back at 2015, where have I seen uh, a deeper trust in God in the midst of hurt, in the midst of loss? Where have I seen the cross of Jesus Christ loom larger in my life over the course of the last year? And then ask God before you come take communion for him to do the very same thing in 2016, for him to uh, increase your, your joy in the cross of Jesus Christ and to, to expand your vision of the cross, your, your vision of the gospel for your own life. And then come and take the bread and dip it in the cup. If you're not a Christian, um, I mean, I, I pray that my prayer for you is that you'd become a Christian because uh, it just seems hopeless to me to enter into a new year without Jesus. Like that, that just seems like a hopeless vision for the next 12 months for your life. Jesus lived your life, he died your death, he rose and conquered sin and death, and he offers hope to anyone who will trust in him. And if you're not a Christian, I would implore you to trust in Jesus today. Join this family and let's start growing in the gospel together. Um, we're not a, a bunch of varsity Christians who look at the JV squad and, and treat each other differently. We're all saved by grace. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. 
That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.